Hello and welcome back to There Was an Idea, a Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast. I'm your host TK, a teacher and pop culture enthusiast. In this episode, I thought I could change my name. I'm joined by fellow podcaster, one half of MCU Need to Know, Trey. We dig into the big ideas of the latest MCU release, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. If you're enjoying the podcast, you can follow me for updates and behind-the-scenes extras at anidea underscore podcast on Instagram and Twitter. And please consider leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Enjoy the episode. Just a quick editor's note right at the top. This episode is fully spoiled for Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, so please take that into account and proceed with caution. Also, in this episode, I cite an article from Time Magazine. I misidentify the author as Kim Moon, when really the author's name is Cat Moon. And just to plug it again right up top, her article is called Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings Made Me Feel Seen Like No Other Hollywood Blockbuster Has. And you can find a link to that in the show notes. And one more quick note, this episode is quite a bit longer than other episodes of There Was an Idea. I decided not to split it up into two parts because that was not the original plan, and the conversation between Trey and I didn't really have a natural pausing point. So please feel free to chunk your listening of this episode into two halves if you would like, because Trey really is such a thoughtful guest, and this movie really deserves as much of a deep dive analysis as we could give it. And we both continued to learn a lot and appreciate aspects of the film more so as we discussed it. So enjoy. Today, I am joined by one of the first people I got to know in the MCU podcasting world, one half of the wonderful review and analysis show MCU Need to Know, and one of the most thoughtful and eloquent people I've had the pleasure of collaborating with in this space. It's Trey. How you doing today, Trey? Well, hi, I'm doing fantastic, especially after that intro. That was... uh. That was really nice. Thank You're you. You're kind of like the king of intros, so I had to up my game a little bit today. <laughs> you know, that has been such a fun challenge whenever we have guests is that's my goal every time is to make them go like, hey, thank you for that. That was fantastic. So to, to extend that same courtesy to you, thank you. Before we get into the reason that we're here today, which is to discuss Shang-Chi, why don't you tell us a little bit about how things are going for you and Jude over at MCU Need to Know? Yeah, it's uh it's been fun. We we've been covering What If, which is the current running show on Disney Plus for the MCU. And you know, hopefully I'm not stepping too out of line here without without Jude's confirmation on this, but I think there's been a second swell of energy from us uh in these back three episodes versus the first three that we had because we switched up the way that we've been doing things lately, where mm-hmm. when we first started, we were kind of trying to break down the episodes through most important topics. And then after that third episode, we had like a long conversation of like, I think these are too short to to do it the way we traditionally do it. And so after we switched things to more of like an act breakdown structure, it's been a lot of fun kind of going in that route since they are shorter and a little bit easier to digest in almost a scene by scene breakdown. So uh yeah, that's what that's what Jude and I have been up to lately. It's 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 funny how we're still approaching the same content, but just those little tweaks to the process can make a world of difference when it comes to running a podcast like this. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. 
I've taken a little bit of a different approach on my podcast with covering What If, because I think Mm -hmm. like you and Jude, it's been a little bit start and stop. There have been some kind of mixed thoughts on on the show. And for reasons not related to that, I I started off by uh, focusing on (laughs) on episodes one through three in a chunk. And so then since then, I've done four and five as a chunk, and I'm going to be doing actually six, seven, eight and then doing nine in a wrap-up, so there's a little bit of a preview there. But I think that in hearing you guys week to week, it has been really cool to see how from one episode to the other, whether it's you or whether it's Jude, your thoughts might be vastly different from the episode (laughs) before, which was something that the other series didn't afford us as much, that Mm -hmm. unique experience each week um, because the stories are so different. So it's been cool Mm -hmm. to see the two of you in conversation with each other trying to balance sometimes those mixed feelings, but then also what are sometimes your challenge with trying to lead with the positive and trying to uh, speak to what might resonate from the episode with also the fact that there've been some, there've been some ups and downs with the series. Yeah. And it was, it's so funny too, because when we started the podcast, I, I mean, that's what brought Jude and I together is like, oh, we share this love for the MCU. We generally feel the same way about it. And it's been pretty much consistent. We've had some instances where we've bucked heads a little bit like Falcon and the Winter Soldier, our infamous <laughs> truck debate that we've had. But but that's fine because he if, never references it at all. Oh, never. <laughs> <laughs> it's so but in yeah, the past. <laughs> Yeah, who? I mean, it's in my rearview mirror for sure. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's been fun to uh, to kind of see where we lie each week to week. So maybe we're getting practice for any foreseeable trucks in the future of the MCU. <laughs> there it is, and of course, your most recent episode to the date of this recording that we're doing right now was with friend Daniel, who is yeah now you know he's officially been friend of my show and friend of your show, so he really earns that. Capital F you know, friend I, Daniel title. Yeah, I think at this point we've we've settled on he's the universal friend. Like no matter <laughs> which which university and he's such a delightful person and so enthusiastic that yeah, it 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 makes me so happy. Like I don't think we planned this, but it's it's almost whenever he does his stints, he's it's like he's someone doing a press tour where he'll come to MC you need to know, and then there was an idea or vice versa, and it makes me happy every time. <laughs> I'll, yeah, and maybe part of it is I'll be chatting with him and he's like, yeah, I'm on this show again. And I'm like, oh, well, for your next appearance on my show, this is what I'm thinking. And also, do you want to like do it next week? <laughs> um, so he's actually going to be on my show two weeks from now. Oh, that's fantastic. Looking forward to it. <laughs> the friend Daniel press tour. I love it. <laughs> so we have developed a little bit of a community outside of these conversations that we do on the podcast. And it's been really delightful. And there's a little bit of a story that I want to share with listeners, a little story that will provide some context to what brings you here today as my guest for the Shang-Chi analysis episode. And that is that after what was your first viewing of the film on Saturday, September 4th, you texted the Podvengers group chat, our group chat, Uh me and you and Jude, and you wrote... Uh, This is what you wrote, just got out, I'm smitten, and along with a bunch of other more specific thoughts about Shang-Chi that I want you to share later. And Mm -hmm. 
just that energy that you had over the movie matched the energy that I had and Jude chimed in and it was just so great to be able to have this conversation with you guys and with Black Widow as well. We were texting each other on opening weekend. And so thank you for for welcoming me into this community. And I'm I'm really so grateful that we've been able to to build these connections. But then the next thing that happened in the conversation was that you shared your new ranking of your MCU top five. And maybe mm-hmm. I'm hoping you can share that later in the spirit of the most recent episode of my show that came out. I would be delighted to. I kept I kept wanting to chime in all while I was listening to your episode. <laughs> <laughs> and I knew I knew I was having you on, so I was like, definitely got to ask Trey when we, next time mm-hmm. we talk. And but what was so funny is that Jude <laughs> joked and also shout out to Jude who I also need to have share his top 5 at some point. But he joked in the group chat that my top 5 was Black Widow four times and then Shang-Chi. <laughs> and that his top 5 was just Spider-Man listed five times and that was so funny. <laughs> it it was fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Which I, at that point, was it, had you seen Black Widow five times? Was he matching it? Was it a perfect sync there? Or have you already surpassed five viewings? I I have, <laughs> I, well, that's funny. Five is the number of times I saw it in the theater. Oh, nice. <laughs> but I don't know if that was an explicit reference. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, but yeah, you you had shared some really beautifully stated thoughts on this film, Shang-Chi, uh, the action scenes. And I could tell that you felt really passionately about it. And I already had in the back of my mind that I wanted to be able to dig into it with you a little bit more and for listeners to hear that as well. And then we chatted about it some more and I heard your episode that you did with Jude. And so finally I, I messaged you and I was just like, Trey, please talk about Shang-Chi with me on the show. <laughs> so thank you so much for for being here to do that. Yeah, thank you for having me. So let's start with some of your thoughts. Uh, how many times have you seen Shang-Chi to this date? And have your thoughts and feelings changed at all since you shared your first reactions? So at this point, I have seen it twice. Both were in the opening weekend. And the when I saw it the first time, that was my compromise. Like, this is probably going to be the last movie I saw going into... To winter, just because of, you know, with with COVID and everything, the temperatures mm-hmm. dropping, you know, I thought, okay, just one time. And traditionally, I always work Labor Day because I'm in lawn service and, you know, the grass keeps growing even though it's a holiday. So <laughs> that's usually what I'm doing. But we got rained out at work. So I, that was just the push I needed to be like, okay, I'm going to go watch it one more time. So I ended up sneaking two viewings that holiday weekend. And uh, I'm so thankful I got the opportunity to do so. Um, as far as like the way the feelings have changed, it's it hasn't changed so much as it has deepened. Uh, those initial reactions, like I think even when I texted you, it was like, okay, I'm going to keep my my hand on this idea that most likely some of this is recency bias. You know, I'm riding the high of going to this movie. Mm-hmm. It, it resonated with me on so many different levels. I, I'm going to be very excited about it, but let's reassess this, you know, three weeks from now, if I'm still feeling this way and getting the opportunity to see it again was, was lessening that, that hold on recency bias and be like, no, this is really resonating me. And these are the, the examples that I now have on the second viewing to be like, yes, like this, this movie is special. Yeah, I absolutely relate to that as well. Now, when we did 
our MCU movie draft episode, you and I and Jude, we recorded that already, what, almost a couple months ago. Yeah. Which is funny to think about. It was right before Black Widow came out. So yeah, over two months ago. Um, But when we did the movie draft, the film that you actually picked in the upcoming 2021 slate was Shang-Chi. And I re-listened to that actually earlier today in preparation for this this conversation because I was I was curious what were Trey's thoughts on Shang-Chi before he had seen it. And mm-hmm. you said something to the effect of the fact that it was really speaking to you and, and you had thought about choosing Eternals or or you weren't sure, but that there was something about Shang-Chi that was speaking to you and that you chose it in that game we did. And that got me thinking, you know, what were your expectations really? What were your expectations really moving into this movie? And, you know, it certainly sounds like it met those expectations, if not exceeded them. Mm. Oh, I I think exceeded them for sure. Um, I think the easiest place to start with of those expectations going in, and I'm fairly certain I said this in the, in the game that we were doing, that there is a physicality to Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings that the trailers were depicting. And... Given the astronomical stakes of the end of phase three, that felt like something that was missing in the MCU. And mm-hmm. like, of course, it was fun spectacles and 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 wonderful for a variety of reasons. But Shang-Chi seemed to be offering um, action that felt more akin to Winter Soldier, which is another personal favorite movie of mine. Um, and, and even... Sticking with something more uh, new in Phase 4, Black Widow had aspects of those hand-to-hand combat. So right away, that was already grabbing my attention. But the thing that stuck out to me, I believe in that second trailer for it, was the conversation that Shang-Chi had with his aunt where she said something to the extent of, you are both your mother and your father. And the implication of like having to reconcile those two histories. And so right then in that trailer, I was like, "Uh uh-oh. Like I know this is going to be a waterworks whenever I am seeing this in the theater because I, I love that implication of family and what it means to... Shang-Chi, especially when the little tidbits we got in the trailer of being from someone like Wenwu. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's, that's what was speaking to me. And man, it's, it's, I'm so glad now, like for a variety of reasons, like it was fun to get to do that with you, but to capture that moment in time and to see that there's a consistent like excitement build up to actually seeing the movie is really cool. It really is. Yeah. Because there are some times when we may be getting excited for something or have high expectations for something and then it doesn't quite land where we thought it might land and and that's disappointing but to see that you had this feeling about Shang-Chi at all, all along and that that only deepened as you said is really really awesome to to hear about mm-hmm. were there any aspects of the film that didn't resonate with you quite as much you know, I, I I thought about this a lot, um, just kind of like looking at the outline when where you had the general likes and dislikes. And I mean, I could be out here all day talking about the likes, and I really struggled with the dislikes. So it's not necessarily something that I disliked, rather it being something that I was hoping to see more of. And it's with Shang-Chi's sister, uh, Xia Ling. Uh, I think she has a very consistent story throughout the movie, but it's a little bit more backseat to some of the stuff that was present center in Shang-Chi. So if I had to pick any any place to zone in on, that's somewhere where I would have liked to have seen more from the movie itself. 
Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think I too, with this film, I don't have dislikes as much as I have things that I really liked that I just would have <laughs> wanted to see more of. Yeah. Um, and anything else that really did resonate with you that you haven't touched on yet? I know you said you could be here all day with the likes. Yeah. You know, trying to paint in broad strokes, because I know we're going to get into it mm -hmm. here in a second. I was thinking about this right before we recorded. I think the thing that's really special about this movie is how thoughtful it is, uh, not only in the handling of representation, uh, but also with the the weight of family and how that can affect a single person. Uh, I, I know I mentioned it before we recorded, you know, intergenerational trauma and how that is depicted within the movie itself. So it's... It's a very thoughtful movie, which I think is a very special thing to nail in a big Marvel blockbuster movie because it could so easily just be the spectacle and as big as Marvel is, people would love it, but it aims to be something more and thoughtful and has things to say that I think is really special. And I think that's what I can sum up my likes in that one statement. Yeah, I think that's really lovely the way you stated that. And I had that feeling too, that there was a, a tone of profundity that this film had that many of the others that are among my favorites, it's not a knock to them, but many of the others don't necessarily have. And mm -hmm. you, you said that what it was aiming for, and it reminds me of a line from this film, right? <laughs> if you aim at nothing, you hit nothing. And uh -huh. just that idea of like there being something more that this film was trying to communicate. And and I think that's consistent with the, we, I've been talking about this with numerous guests that as we get further into phase four, we're seeing the MCU, we're seeing Marvel Studios hire creatives who are known for these other niche type of things that they did. And the director of Shang-Chi, Destin Daniel Cretton, I had known his work, uh, two films particularly, Just Mercy, mm -hmm. and which is uh, based on a, a real story during the civil rights movement and is very somber and celebratory in, in its own way. And the other film of his that I, that I was familiar with, it was Short Term 12, which came out, I want to say, around 2000 and... 12 and it, it takes place in a in uh within an institution for for younger people who are are having some some challenges and actually stars brie larson and so mm -hmm. actually going into this film i was like oh destin daniel cretton he worked with brie larson in both films short term 12 and just mercy and i was curious if, if she was going to make an appearance in in shang chi um oh, wow I didn't even think about that connection. That's really cool. Yeah. Are you familiar, I'm familiar with those? With Short Term 12. I have not seen Just Mercy, but uh, Short Term 12, I just remember that was another waterworks film where it was like, it just, it is, it's a movie that has its heart front and center and it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I think that makes, because uh, I didn't even realize that that's who directed Shang-Chi as well. And I think that makes so much sense with the whole thoughtful and considerate nature that this movie has as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it's been quite some time since I've seen that film. So I hope that I did it justice in my like 10 second <laughs> description of what it's about. I, I could be slightly off. So apologies for that. It's been some time, but I'm definitely looking forward to revisiting it. It was one of those movies that had an impact to me. And like, I remember 
watching it and I remember the way mm-hmm. I felt, even if I don't remember exactly what happened in it. Mm-hmm. Well, this this ties into Shang-Chi, but it might be a potential spoiler for Short Term 12. Are you okay with me sharing it? Yes, and we'll just tell any listeners right now to fast forward maybe uh-huh. 60 seconds if they don't want it's to hear real it. real quick. <laughs> okay, 30 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so like, you know, I talked about the the reconciling your history, your family history, there's a line in Short Term 12 that has lived with me since the moment I saw it where they're at this gathering with their their family and they're, this person's giving a toast and he says, everything good in my good and bad in my life has happened because of you. And he was speaking to his parents and the way that he said it was just this like recognizing the influence that they had on his life. And so that fits wonderfully, I think, to some of the things that Shang-Chi is tackling as well. So I appreciate you making that connection for me because I, I didn't realize that until just now. Wow. Yeah, that's really powerful. And to see that through line in this director's history is really cool. And and I think it it actually goes back to where I kind of started this thought, which was the fact that I do think Marvel is starting to give a little bit more free reign to some of the creatives that they're hiring in putting a unique stamp on whichever installment it is that they're working on. And it it's, must be such a challenge for a director like Cretton or a director like Chloe Zhao to be able to balance what they do with what Marvel Studios is asking them to do. I, I can only imagine that it's it's very challenging, but it is cool to see some of the unique flares of these individual filmmakers on the Marvel projects. And I, I think we really started to get that with Taika Watiti and with Ryan Coogler, and it's cool to see that continue. Yeah. And I, I do want to zoom out for a minute to situate this film in the larger context of the MCU. 2021 has been a a very big year. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) And the MCU installments that we've gotten so far this year have represented a a combination of looking back and looking ahead. The Disney Plus shows, specifically WandaVision, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, and Loki, have focused on characters who we had already met and dug deeper into their psyches a little bit and then laid a bridge to where we're going next in the MCU, right? So we're going to see Sam as Captain America. So this is how he got here. We're going to see Wanda as the Scarlet Witch. This is how she got there. And we're going to see the multiverse. We're going to see Kang. And so Loki sets that up. Even similarly, Black Widow, a missing chapter in the overarching story, focusing on a character that we've known for years, saying goodbye to her, Natasha, but then also greeting Yelena, which is another bridge to where we might be going. And what if, you and I have talked about how we're not (laughs) entirely sure about the role of what if in the universe. Maybe we're a little bit what if skeptics, but again, I- It's Funko Pops. It it is Funko Pops, exactly. Um, But it's, it's focusing on characters we've known and loved for years, placing them in a different circumstance. And so- that sells Funko Pops, absolutely. <laughs> um, and I will say, it, it seems the Watcher is, that Watcher character is laying some foundation for us in understanding more of the multiverse. So all of this to say that I was thinking through what phase four is. And after all of the shows and films that I just mentioned, Shang-Chi was something that didn't fit into that same mold of looking back, looking ahead, that bridge idea. 
because here we have a brand new protagonist in part of the universe we haven't seen before, surrounded by characters we haven't met before for the most part. And we're, we're not looking back. It's situated in the aftermath of Endgame, but it's not really looking back. And it, I would argue that it's not really dealing with a bridge to something else either. And in meta terms, Shang-Chi feels more like a destination in and of itself. So I'm wondering if that rings true to you too, Trey. 100%. And I, I'm so happy the way that you have framed that with the describing the things that have come before as a bridge, because I think that's a lot more eloquent than the, what I was trying to get at, because one of the things that I said in our quick reaction um, to Shang-Chi is, you know, I appreciated Black Widow, but, you know, that was a prequel movie. And and it didn't sit right with me at the time because that felt so reductive to what that movie has done. And so even though I'm, I'm 100% in sync with you about Shang-Chi being something new, being a firm step forward into the continuation of this universe, um, yeah, I think you have phrased that wonderfully. And and to even add to it a little bit, yes, Black Widow becoming the bridge for Yelena, it's also the bridge we didn't know we needed with uh, Natasha as well. So I, you have completely reframed some of the things that we've gotten in phase four for me. So yeah. I like thinking of it that way. And and maybe if I mm-hmm. think about it a little bit longer, there will be something to the metaphor that will break down. I'm sure I'm sure friend Daniel will will uh, <laughs> will think about it for us too as he listens. So shout out to him. But I think that the other thing in, in terms of the meta story of Shang-Chi, now that it's been a couple of weeks since its release, is that the reception has been tremendous, tremendously positive. And it's interesting because the hype for it got lost a little bit, I think. There was so much going on on the Disney Plus side of things this summer. There was so much going on with the trailers for Eternals and Spider-Man No Way Home. But despite the fact, and, and despite, maybe in part because of, I'm not sure, um, the the really positive reception has been um, from you know fans and critics alike has been insane. What What's some of your thinking about why this film has had such success at the box office and such positive reception from these different audiences. I think the, the energy behind it is again, rooted in that, you know, being the, the first step forward into something new um, with black widow, despite it, like, cause I really enjoyed that movie as well, but despite, despite how I feel about it, we still had the long delays getting to it. I mm-hmm. think that was something that was originally supposed to come out in 2020. Uh, it was delayed multiple times. So there was all this real-world baggage that I think kind of stifled the conversations around that, unfortunately, sure. because I think it did deserve more than than what happened because of the real-world circumstances. So transitioning into Shang-Chi, I think there was this definitive act of this movie is coming to the theaters it is happening you can get excited and it was a for a large portion of people given the success of the box office it was something to look forward to and so i think that weighs into the excitement and the surge of of uh, people rallying behind it and then on top of that uh you know you hinted at some of the disney plus debacles that were going on between um, Scarlett Johansson and Disney in in regards to payouts. Um, 
you know, some unfortunate wording was used by some of the higher ups in Disney in calling Shang-Chi an experiment. And Simu Liu took to Twitter to say like, hey, we're more than just an experiment. We've been putting our hearts into this movie. And so I think that helped galvanize the energy going into it as well. So when all those factors are leading into it and people do go see it and it does live up to the hype, it's just, it's the perfect, the perfect storm, I think, for people to really fall in love with it. Yeah, I, I I think I'm I'm there with you. And isn't Simu such a great online presence? He's so good at Twitter and just being a charming person. The stock photo handling alone, where people dug up some of his old work where he was just in random stock footage and then used that <laughs> to make a meme of people who doubted the movie, like He's amazing. I'm, he I'm in all, like, I spend a lot of time on social media because I, I, I like the inner workings of it and trying to learn how to do it. He gives a master class in every tweet. It's truly remarkable. And yeah, he's, he's so winsome. Uh, I just I always liked him from the minute I've, I saw him on a screen with Kim's Convenience. And it's just so wonderful to see him on the big screen here. And uh, shout out to my sometimes guest, Rob, who I went to see Shang-Chi with last week. And Trey, by the way, I, I so I, I've been four times. You know about my AMC movie pass. I'm not going to beat that horse to death. I promise. But <laughs> <laughs> that's a weird horse. Um, but <laughs> but I I went four times to see Shang Chi, and wow, I did, I did. And I thought about before our conversation tonight. I was like, oh, if I go to the six o'clock, I could probably watch like the first hour or so of the movie, <laughs> and then come home. I thought about it. I did. Um, that's amazing. <laughs> I went with Rob last week and he, you know, the first time we see Simu on the screen, he just like nudges me and he's just like, this guy's an Adonis, like in his typical Rob fashion, <laughs> if you've listened, listened to the episodes before. And, uh, it's just, you know, Rob hadn't been familiar with him as an actor or his work. And just like, he's mm -hmm. immediately just like, wow, this dude looks like a superhero. And I think, you know, you've touched on it, but another big part of the conversation surrounding Shang-Chi is representation, specifically of Asian and Asian-American characters in film, and specifically in comic book and superhero movies. And so I, you know, I, that's, this is something that I can't speak to personally. So mm -hmm. I do want to point listeners to a very moving article written by Kim Moon of Time Magazine. And it's called Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings Made Me Feel Seen Like No Other Hollywood Blockbuster Has. Trey, did you read this piece? I did, yes. And uh, I'm so thankful that you got to uh, send it along. And, um, you know, that was something when Jude and I did our quick reactions episode, the first thing that we talked about the moment we hit stop recording was that feeling of wanting to speak to some of that representation, but obviously, you know, I'm, it's not our place to do so. And so that article, I think, captured a lot of the consideration that I was feeling coming out of that movie. And it's really wonderful. Yeah, it's a really nice article, and I'll make sure that I link to it Again, in the show notes for this episode, I had uh, linked to it on Twitter. Here, I'm really bad at using Twitter. I say this all the time. I don't even think linked to it on Twitter is a phrase I should be using. But regardless, <laughs> <laughs> the author, she really digs into the specific moments and the details 
of the mm-hmm. representation and how, in her opinion, the film was really effective in its use of those little details. And I think that's interesting because it's not just as simple as saying like, okay, so here is a superhero who is Chinese American, right? She she talks about how the language, like specific phrases and nicknames that were used in the film, references to food and so on. And she writes, quote, specificity creates authenticity. And I think that's just so powerful because sometimes we think about maybe if if you're taking a bit of a cynical view toward corporations and their their messaging, which I sometimes do, um, sometimes we think, okay, well, there's representation in saying, okay, we checked this box, right? And what was really powerful to read in this article and others as well, certainly uh, Kim Moon at Time Magazine is not the only person who is is writing um, pieces to this effect, but to hear that the Shang-Chi film succeeded in its specificity, I thought was really really cool and really powerful. Yeah, it's um, it's definitely an achievement. I, and I think you were touching on something um, about, you know, it's it's not just enough to to have the, what's the word I'm looking for? The, the drapings of that representation. It's doing the work and showing the, the meaning behind just putting a reference here or there. And I think this movie does that in abundance. So let's talk about this movie. Let's talk about the movie itself. Quickly, for those of you who are new to There Was an Idea or who haven't listened to one of the movie analysis episodes recently or at all, uh, the approach we take here is similar to that, to that that I'm doing with the TV series, which is instead of going through the movie or the episode beat by beat, we organize our discussion of key moments from the film around an analysis of big ideas. So in Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, there was certainly an idea about identity. And there are some other ideas here too. I want to start with that one because I think we can organize our conversation all around that. The theme of identity in this film is intricately connected to the themes of family and of purpose that are also present in the movie And I I think Shang-Chi is very much a movie about forging your own path. Is there something that you think Shang-Chi is specifically saying about identity? I think there is a specific quote from Shang-Chi's aunt herself, uh, Ying Nan, where she mentions, know who you are. Uh, mm-hmm. That's what Shang-Chi's mother was capable of doing. That was the advice that she was offering to help Shang-Chi tackle the problems that the movie puts in front of him. And so, yeah, I think it's even more than just like who these characters are. The movie steps into the space of writing these characters to, without a doubt, know who they are, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, it does. I, I think that we see that throughout the film. And I think what we'll do is we will go through some specific moments that really stand out related to to this overarching concept. And something that immediately struck me is that the first time that we see Shang-Chi in the film, it is as a little boy in flashback. And we've seen flashbacks opening MCU films before. Most recently in Black Widow, it starts with Natasha also in flashback as a child. And 
what was actually interesting, though, with Shang-Chi was that, yes, that's the first time that we see him, but the story doesn't start with him at all, right? It starts with narration by his mother about his father. And to me, thinking about it from this lens, okay, that's a signal to say that this character, for better or for worse, is being introduced to us in some way being defined for us in relation to his family. Yeah, and and it makes sense because Win Wu, I think, is the emotional heartbeat of this movie. Yes, it's it's Shang-Chi's origin story, but the reason I think this movie works so well is because it takes that time to show us who Win Wu is. And the way they do it in that opening uh, narration where we see the flashback of Wu and all his conquests for thousands of years, we get to learn about the ruthlessness of him and the the immense power that he has found with the rings. But there's a moment in particular that I, I remember just really making him stand out from just being a, you know, menacing, brutal force. He looked bored on mm. the throne. There was a where he was sitting among all his riches. He had conquered the land and he was just sitting in his throne with his like hand against his cheek, just kind of looking out into the distance. And so right then and there, you know, knowing who you are, here's this person who has this power to conquer everything and he's still not happy with it. And so from the get go, you know, this journey is going to be about him. And I don't even want to say successfully because it's not necessarily until maybe the last end of the movie where he realizes what he what he truly wanted but he's he's constantly reaching for something that's not there and so yeah i think it's very powerful that this movie starts with him because it is his actions that are the reverberation throughout the entirety of the movie yeah i think that that's a really interesting way of approaching this too because when I, I said this in my first impressions episode, but when I first sat down to the movie and I realized that it started with narration and that we weren't mm-hmm. seeing Shang-Chi yet, I was like, kind of immediately took a, a, a doubting stance, which I usually don't. Mm-hmm. I usually approach everything from a believing stance. I don't know why. I think I was in off mood that day, but I was like, <laughs> well, I was like, man, I, I like it when they throw us into the titular character, the main character and, and throw us into some action. And here we are with this backstory. But I think for all the reasons you just said, and upon further reflection, I, you know, and by further reflection, I mean five minutes into the movie, I was like, oh, okay, no, never mind. I see why they did this. Um, so I think it, it absolutely worked to start with Wenwu for everything that you're saying. What'd you make of that scene where he's, the way that they portrayed Wenwu's falling in love with Shang-Chi's mother through this fight dance was just beautiful. I think that is the moment like I remember sitting in the seat thinking, I love this movie. Like it was, I knew that their handling on how this was going to work. It was just perfect. And, you know, the thing that I texted you upon exiting the theater is there's this, this idea. It's not original to me. I, I've seen it brought up so often that I don't know who to credit it to, but there's this idea in say musicals that as that story progresses, whenever the emotions of the characters get so overwhelming, they break out into song. And that's how they express those feelings because that is the vocabulary of that genre. And the thing that Shang-Chi does so well because it does speak in action is 
it takes the time to show the contrasting nature of the brutal force of Wu and the more open and fluid discipline of the woman he falls in love with, uh, Ying Li, and it melds their two ideologies together with the most minimal dialogue. And you mm-hmm. can feel, because their chemistry is so wonderful, you can feel them falling in love. And for the first time, Wu is saying there is more to what he's seeking than just power because that's what originally brought him to the entrance of Talo. He was looking for the next step of his power, but what he found was love instead. And so it just completely altered his course. And all of that is conveyed in that choreography of the fight. It is. You just feel it. You don't need dialogue. You don't need exposition, right? It's just the performance of the two actors and the way that it was choreographed is I think that analogy of being akin to musical numbers, right? Where, mm-hmm. as you said, those are those are the moments where you can't hold it in anymore, right? The the truth needs to come out in those moments, and and seeing a film like this where the fight scenes, the action scenes take mm-hmm. on that resonance is just it's so so cool, and it's so beautiful. Like I I. Like, I, I have these more eloquent, deeper meanings of what these scenes are. And that I think the beauty of, or the, the specialness of the movie is I keep coming back to, it's just pretty. Like, it's such yeah. a great movie <laughs> that it can, can imbue all these themes in such a fantastic wrapper of a film. Yes, it's so cool. I Speaking of fun, Funko Pops, I got the <laughs> one of Ying Li where she's in the mask and the hat and the outfit from the opening bit. And it's a very cool Funko Pop, too, because she's kind of like they made it so that it looks like she's, you know, in mid flight almost. It's very cool. That's wonderful. So so we're immediately seeing Shang-Chi's parents. We're seeing what you said, kind of the blending of like there are two different approaches to fighting. There are two different approaches, clearly, to to uh, the way they live their lives, right? The way uh, Wenwu, the the culture of the Ten Rings organization that he saturated in, for her, right, the culture of Talo that she saturated in, and then the product of that that's Shang Chi. We see him as a little boy first, as I said in the flashback, and then when we see him as an adult, he's in his small apartment. I love the you know hip hop music is playing. Amazing soundtrack, by the way. Um, he's putting on a suit, but he's not the guy getting out of the out of the fancy <laughs> sports car, and he's the one parking it. Great moment. And you know, early on, it seems we we see Shang Chi in relationship to Katie, his best friend. We see him in relationship to her family. So you start to get found family vibes here with her family for him. He, I like Shang Chi right off the bat, not just because I like Simu Liu. But because he doesn't seem like he has a ton of ambition, <laughs> he's very <laughs> down to earth, he's kind and he's charming, but he's not, you know, prim and proper. He's on the other end, he's not arrogant either, right? He's just like a dude who likes to go karaoke on work nights. He seems like you want to go hang out with him. And uh, so immediately off, off the bat, Shang-Chi is a likable character to me. Yeah. And, you know, hearing you recap all that, the thing that comes to mind is there's almost an irony in this whole movie being about knowing who you are. And there is some truth to what they're displaying with Shang-Chi and Katie. You know, they're not necessarily 
lauded as these ambitious people or have the most successful careers, but they have this ideology of like, what does it matter? We're happy. We, we like what we do. We're proud of what we do. So in a sense, they do know who they are, but because they're not being honest with themselves and there still is more, it's this false sense of security that we're getting to in the movie. So in the beginning of the movie. So hearing you recap that like made me find a new appreciation for it uh, here at the top. Yeah. And I, I think those scenes are important in setting up who Shang-Chi is and also in setting up Katie as this supporting character who really gets her due. And I think as the MCU has gone on, it has done a better job of fleshing out some of those details for our supporting characters so that we are more invested in them. Um, and I think it almost, you know, it kind of echoes the quote I read from the article, right, about specificity creating the authenticity. The specificity also kind of creates our connections to characters. And so I think they did a really good job of making Katie feel like a a real person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that was one of the things that stood out to me. Look, I, I'm a 30 year old who was traumatized by Bo Burnham's inside. Like I yep. know that <laughs> feeling of, you know, not quite living up to what you wanted to be or what you thought you'd be. And I think Katie is, is displaying that so much because she has those conversations with her mother where she's like, hey, sorry, I'm not what you thought I'd be, mom, you know, but maybe I'll make you happy one day. And, you know, she has the quip to, I believe, her younger brother where she's like, hey, well, maybe one day you'll get your license and you can live the life like me. (laughs) And so it's like, it's, it's trying to be who she is with that burden of who I think she thinks other people are demanding of her. So yeah, it's Katie... Katie is a 100% a relatable character in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. While she's dealing with that, we have Shang-Chi, who we see, because we know his backstory from the opening of the film, it seems like he's entirely disconnected from his past. But we do have the a couple of things. We have the pendant, which is a super significant object in the storytelling, right, representing his connection to his mom and our signal that he hasn't let go of his past entirely. And of course, then also the fact that he receives the postcard from Macau and we'll get into that. The next big scene in this film that I think really reveals a lot to us about Shang-Chi in this film is the action scene on the bus. What does that scene Mm. tell us about who he is? It's, such a wonderful introductory scene for Shang-Chi because, again, dealing with this idea of knowing who you are, you know, we have these this dressing of them not being ambitious, but Shang-Chi is incredibly capable, like, to the point he's running from it and and his the person closest to him, Katie, doesn't even know that he's capable of this. And so... It's such a great way to introduce us to a character where normally our heroes are stepping into the unfamiliarity and learning about themselves. He already knows who he is. He knows he's capable of this. And so while Katie, as the audience surrogate, is watching him do all these incredible skit feats, you know, he is calm. He's collected. I mean, he has those charming moments where he lands on the seat next to the passenger and he just kind of gives a smile and a wave <laughs> or he like gets the laptop and uses it to defend himself. And he's like, sorry, and then hands it back. He is comfortable at the task at hand, even if he's not comfortable who he has to become to do it. And the thing 
I think the final topper on why this works so well as an introduction, he does his best to run away from it, to run away from the discipline of his father. But the moment that Katie is in danger, he allows himself to revert back to the thing that he was running from to protect somebody he really cares about. So you learn so much in that sequence about Shang-Chi. Yeah, absolutely. That's when he springs into action is when Katie is hurt, when Katie is threatened. And then following up the bus scene, you know, hearing that his sister is being threatened, right? Razor Fist says, Mm -hmm. you and your sister, that gets him moving, right? So he's packing a bag as soon as he gets back home because he's got to go see his sister. So you're right that it shows us the, the compassionate person that he is and it shows us where his motivations and values lie. That bus scene is also just so freaking cool. Going back to your point of like, <laughs> looks pretty. I, uh-huh. How amazing was that? Just, I was, I was on the edge of my seat every time I saw it. It was just exhilarating. And it, it feels real. I don't know if you've seen some of the behind the scenes footage that they've shared on social media. Simu Liu was jumping off the top of it. Obviously, yeah. you know, there's harnesses. It's not actually moving and green screens, but he was performing some of those feats. So it it feels visceral uh, in, in comparison to the things that are happening. And, you know, I mentioned this in, on the quick reactions that Jude and I did. Another brilliant thing that this movie is doing in all its action sequences is it is communicating the importance of the the objectives so you already mentioned the the dragon heart pendant um we we know right away that's what the assailants are going for so because they take the time to show us the importance of what that means to him it makes it easier to follow along with the action because that is the understandable goal within that scene because you know i i when i was listening back to our episode I kept thinking like, well, isn't obviously don't die a pretty big understandable <laughs> objective, but when you're not in there and you're watching these stakes at hands, it it helps to have that more smaller goal to latch onto, which makes the obvious, hey, don't die that much more impactful. 100%. I completely agree. To be able to follow a physical object, right? Like to be able to, mm-hmm. in the scene, say, okay, this is what I'm looking out for. I think that creates very real stakes and it keeps people who otherwise might not be the biggest fan of fight scenes. And in the past couple of weeks, I've talked to a couple of them, people who like the MCU and really enjoy these movies, but don't like fight scenes, which seem which seems like it would be a paradox that just couldn't <laughs> resolve itself. But there are people mm-hmm. like that. But it draws you in when one, it's connected to character development. And two, it's also something that you feel like you need to and you want to follow for the story. So it, it, it's a wonderful scene in, in that respect. The stakes are real, right? Breaks on the bus have been cut. What's going to happen? You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> this dude has a razor fist and he wants <laughs> Shang-Chi's necklace. Like, let's go. Let's see what happens here. So it's mm-hmm. it's absolutely wonderful. I think it's might be my most favorite scene in the film or it's it's tied it's tied for it. And also the um, the side scroll camera technique when they go through the tunnel is just so freaking cool to move down mm-hmm. the bus from the driver toward the back. It's so cool. <laughs> it's breathtaking. Like I, 
I feel like we're going to have, like, we'll have the deeper meanings and after each <laughs> thing we talk about, we're just going to geek out for a second. <laughs> like, also, it just looks awesome. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I do want to say one more thing because, uh, you know, we were talking about the the revelations the action has of the characters. I think it's also important to note, too, Katie's in that scene as well. Yes. And even though it's not front and center as impressive as jumping off the building and taking on somebody with a razor fist, she is still driving that bus. Like she is acting under pressure and navigating through the traffic, finding a way to slow the bus down. And so as much as it's saying, as much as it's saying about Shang-Chi, it's equally revealing things about Katie as well, because the scene leading into this was when they took that, that expensive sports car as you can tell, I'm not yes. really familiar with cars. But when they took that expensive <laughs> sports car out for a test drive, she was like tearing it up and going super fast because she was very confident behind the wheel. And so, you know, one of the things that I mentioned in our review was how meticulously plotted everything is. It's wonderful how they take the time to really lead into those moments, almost educating us. So when they get to those big moments, they're, they're, it's not just... Um, reactionary these are people who are are acting under pressure because it is familiar to them yeah that's a great point it makes it feel very much like a real world with real characters even when they are doing things that are surreal (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) um so yeah so we learned that shang chi is going to spring into action for the people in his life who he cares about so he's packing a bag and we learn that Katie is going to be right there by his side <laughs> and we get some more exposition about his background when they're on the plane. And one of the big things that I want to talk about from this scene, and I don't know if you have others as well, Trey, is mm-hmm. when Shang-Chi talks about his name and he says that he did change his name. He's been going by Sean. Um, and then he tells Katie that his real name is Shang-Chi. So, I took this as Sean is this version of himself who is not defined by his family or by his past and or by his loss, right? His his grief from losing his mom, his trauma from being trained as an assassin by his father at a young age, right? So Sean is is the escape from all of that. Sean is unburdened by that. But Shang-Chi Embracing Shang-Chi means that he needs to come face to face with that. And the film seems to suggest, and I I was thinking about the concept of purpose in MCU phase four, because it's something that comes up a lot with Loki, right? Burdened with glorious purpose. And I think it comes up in the others as well. Um, But this film seems to suggest that, that this character's purpose lie in becoming Shang-Chi in like a capital B becoming sort of way, right? So reclaiming <laughs> the name Shang-Chi, becoming the superhero. And and we see more of that later on. What, what, what does it mean to really embrace Shang-Chi as opposed to Sean? And I, I just think mm-hmm. it's so, so powerful when he says, I thought I could change my name, start a new life, but I could never escape his shadow. Yeah, and, and and that scene stuck out to me too, uh, especially for those reasons as well, like you know trying to change who you are, and 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 to reference that article you mentioned about the Asian representation, um, the caveat being again, like 
if, if I'm messing this up, I am still trying to learn. But from everything that I have read, especially after the stop API hate movements mm-hmm. that happened during the summer, was this idea of having to model yourself towards the expectations of, you know, other Americans. And, and the article itself specifically mentioned how they had their name consistently mispronounced. Yeah. And so when you have this moment here where Shang Chi is trying to uh, explain to Katie about the reasons he changed it, the way to pronounce it, it's that relatable moment of like, yes, you have on one angle him trying to run from who he used to be, but that feeling of having to almost Americanize himself because, I mean, it's Sean. Yes. Like, it's close to Shang-Chi, but it's not. And so it's it's a very powerful scene. And the thing that I think works so well is it can have that moment and also have the levity to it as well because Katie immediately fires back and it's like, Sean, your name is Sean Chi and you changed it to Sean. No wonder your father found you. <laughs> so funny. So, mm-hmm. You know, I think that's beautiful the way they are able to interweave those moments. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, just to reference a line from the article, the author says, as someone accustomed to taking five or six attempts for the person I'm speaking with to reach 70% accuracy in pronouncing my name, Shang-Chi's efforts felt deeply familiar, unquote. I think it's it's interesting to, to see how this experience um, rings true for, mm-hmm. for some viewers. So the next part of the film is, I said before that the bus scene might be my favorite scene or it might be tied with the next scene, um, the next (laughs) sequence, I should say, because it's more than one scene. And that is when Shang-Chi and Katie arrive in Macau. And everything about the sequence is amazing. I'm going to let you start, Try. Where do you want to go from here? You know, when you were mentioning the bus sequence might be your favorite, I immediately was here in Macau. Um, You know, there's, there's some stuff to get to before, I think, the moment where it becomes my favorite scene. But the whole premise of where they are and where it culminates to is wonderful because, you know, circling back to the bus scene a little bit, we learn so much about these two characters that when we get to Macau, it's taking like, okay, we know they're both capable. We know they can work well together. How do we take that and ramp it up to the next level? And what better way to visually take that feeling and have its metaphor be displayed in almost a literal tower? The fact that they have to work their way through these levels for Shang-Chi to get to that point where he's fighting the death dealer, it's beautiful. And like, I I think this is 100% my favorite scene. The bus, I think, is a lot flashier, a lot more dazzling, but everything in Macau, I think, is is the story firing on all cylinders. Yeah, and that's a beautiful metaphor to think about, working through the levels, right, as they mm-hmm. climb and, and fight their way across mm-hmm. and up and down the scaffolding. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. like everything, everything about the sequence. Meeting John John, what a fun character. <laughs> <laughs> the betting, right? The gambling, uh, everything about the fighting rink. Uh, it's it's wonderful. John John, I think specifically has my heart just because I my favorite emoji 
is the middle finger because <laughs> it's so ridiculous to me that the middle finger is supposed to be this super insult and we have dumbed it down to an emoji. And so it has become a running theme where I will sometimes just message friends like randomly because you know, they always say like, hey, when you think of somebody, you know, send something nice to them. And it's just funny to me because I generally like to be very nice to to people that <laughs> They randomly get this middle finger from me and they know that it is coming from love. So when John John is exiting that elevator and he just like double deuces the middle finger, I was like, this guy is fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) That is not at all what I would have predicted for your favorite emoji. And I understand that I, you know, I don't know you super well. But we've, uh-huh. I've texted with you and I've talked with you and you you are such a thoughtful and kind person that that's not what I would have thought of. <laughs> <laughs> but I actually love this. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, if you ever get a middle finger from me now, you know why. <laughs> it's fantastic. Oh, my God. That's so funny to me, especially because it's not what you would expect from, from, from talking with you. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, John John is great great character mm-hmm. from the, the moment that we meet him and uh i love seeing him not to jump too far ahead but love seeing him in the post credit scene because maybe he'll be back um and yeah. there's of course you know before we talk about i think what is both of our favorite parts of macau which is the scaffolding fight because i i think mm-hmm. we probably have a little bit more to say about it because it's so freaking cool um but before we even get there you know obviously the the fighting ring we do have the appearance of wong and abomination and while I am not the type of uh, fan or, or podcaster who gets super into the Easter eggs or the um, speculation on what might be happening elsewhere in the universe at the time, I have to ask you what you thought of seeing Wong and Abomination in this film and where you think that might be going. Why was that included, you know, in the scene? You know, I, I think... One of the best features about Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings is how standalone it is. Yeah. And so it feels weird to make reference to that given that Wong and Abomination are an extension of this tapestry of the universe. But I think it's one of the best handlings of making this feel like a connected universe while not detracting from the story that's being told. So it's all the MCU flavoring that we come to love about this universe, but it's not a distraction. It's a character who is quickly, I think, becoming a fan favorite, at least for me personally, but among the internet at, at large. And it's a he's paired with somebody who hasn't been acknowledged by the MCU in a really long time with the abomination. So it's this little seed of something more and something funny because we see the revelation that they're staging fights for money, which is (laughs) such a fun, fun aspect of Wong. But yeah, it's, it's just this promise of more without having to delve too far into it. So I love the flavoring that it brings to um, this moment of the movie. Then of course, when Shang-Chi enters the ring, we have him facing off against, unbeknownst to him, his sister, Zhu Jialing, who is amazing. And I love her so much. And I, I this is becoming a pattern with me where like mm-hmm. the younger sister character is like my favorite. <laughs> so obviously <laughs> Florence Pugh as Yelena, um, who I've, I've been obsessed with pretty much. Uh, even prior to that, like Shuri and Black Panther, right? And now it's like we have Zhu Jialing and I'm just like, Oh, I love, I love them. (laughs) 
Um, but of course, this. Oh, so I was just going to interject. This, I mean, this is you know browsing the internet. So adjust your grains of salt accordingly. But apparently, this was her first film. Like, I just saw that too. Wh- what a a breakout moment for an actor to, and not even being in a big Marvel movie like this, she nails the role. It's it's fantastic. Yes, she absolutely does. They, I, just little things to her performance, the way she interacts with the different characters, she really absolutely communicates who this person is, the hurt that she would be feeling from the you know her perceived and real abandon, abandonment by Shang-Chi. And again, another fight scene that communicates character development, introduces a character she's introduced in this action scene. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's just wonderfully, wonderfully done. Yeah, I can't get enough of it. I love I love what they did here. I mean, frankly, throughout the entirety of the film where they chose to place flashbacks, I think was very effective. So it's like, okay, here are Shang-Chi and Xiaoling fighting and he doesn't want to fight her, but clearly she's got anger and resentment toward him. It did remind me again of Natasha and Yelena and Black Widow, right? Like the reunion of the siblings marked by this violence. <laughs> and it's <laughs> a stand-in. I mean, to your point earlier, right? Like it's a stand-in for dialogue. You know, to see the way that characters reunite with each other and fight it out because it's Mm -hmm. just the superhero world. These people are all assassins and whatever else. To me, that's that's what's beautiful. And I think I want to zone in specifically to something you said about seeing how hurt she is. Yeah. You know, we keep talking about this movie's language is through action. The way they set this up is the only thing that we know about Shang-Chi's sister leading up to this point is that she reached out to him for a perceived danger, or that's how at least Shang-Chi has read it. So this revelation where he gets into the ring and we think, oh, wow, Wong was fighting Abomination. Who's he going to be fighting? And it's his sister. And so you're communicating through action that, yeah, you've got your spectacles, but the large focus of this fight is dealing with his family and his past. And the way that relays to her feeling of being hurt is, like you said, Shang-Chi doesn't want to fight. He's pleading with her to like, hey, let's let's figure this out. We don't have to do this. And she is just nonstop aggressive until it looks like she's about to win over to his side. And we get that flashback. We get that explanation of why she feels this way. And then Shang-Chi just gets that punch in the face and knocked out. And Mm -hmm. so you feel that hurt without her in the moment having to say anything. And that's just great um, communication with its action language. I completely agree. This conversation is making me want to go watch this movie right now. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, you know, to say also that I think like yourself, this is the first time that I'm having one of these deeper dive conversations attempting to really you know, look at the film and analyze the film in a meaningful way without having had the luxury of watching it on a DVD or Disney Plus where you can pause and where you can kind of write down lines of dialogue. I, I didn't take any notes in the movie theater. Did you? Mm-hmm. I did not, no. Yeah. And uh, and I think that speaks to the level at which I love this movie, and but more importantly, the testament of how impactful it is because... You know, it's it's well documented on our podcast at MCU Need to Know. I watch what we are reviewing a minimum of three times, preferably yeah. four times, because like 
that's just how I am with my own anxieties about performing, you know, in a podcast and wanting to make sure things are right. This movie comes so naturally in my recollection because that's that's how impactful it is. And so, yeah, even though we didn't get the luxury of doing like a uh, rewatch for this, it's it's front and center. Yeah, absolutely. And I was thinking the same thing, and I, I have seen it more recently than you. But yeah, to talk with you and hear just about the the specific details of certain facial expressions, <laughs> right, and certain movements, and and in these scenes, it's it absolutely speaks to the impact that it had. So mm. the scaffolding fight scene is absolutely tremendous. I I love everything about it. I just. Even though maybe, okay, the part with uh, Katie hanging off of the beam is like obviously a bit unrealistic, but it's just so cool. It's so, I also love how Katie responds to Jialing and she's just like, hey, Jialing, you're super badass. <laughs> like everything you do is super cool. What, I, I don't remember the exact line, but it's just great. She's I, kind I, of immediately like, I'm here with Shang-Chi and he's my best friend, but like I'll bet against him. And like, yo, it's pretty cool how you kicked his ass. <laughs> and, and, and the camaraderie, like... Because I believe Shaoling responds with, hey, I like your pants. And Katie's just kind of like mesmerized. She's like, like, it's that feeling of like, oh, they like me too. And you could see the start of a friendship there. And it's wonderful. It really is. It really is. And that's the kind of, again, attention to detail to your supporting characters that just makes Mm -hmm. the world feel more lived in and everybody feel more real. And it doesn't take away from the dynamism of your main character either. Shang-Chi absolutely shines in the scaffolding fight scene and uh death dealer what a cool character design oh my god right it's so cool speaking of funko pops that that one is a gamestop exclusive and i'm kicking myself because i saw it everywhere before the movie and then after seeing the movie i can't find it and it's the one that i'm trying to look for oh, now man i'll keep but my yeah, eyes it, peeled Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, but yeah, it, it, it is a testament to the character design of, of the, the, the red and white mask and the blue robes. And just it's it's intimidating without, again, you know, I, I, I'm kind of zoning in on this now. It almost feels like part of the purpose of having the abomination was to inflate the scale expectation. And then once you see the actual threat and it's not as big as say something like abomination, but it's still as impactful. I think that's what speaks to the weight of the history that we're dealing with here. Yeah. King there. I think that's a really powerful observation that you're making there. Yeah. Love everything about the scaffolding fight. Love death dealer. Not to jump too far ahead, but earlier when we were talking about how, at least for me, not so much things that I don't like, Actually, I think we both said this, right? Not so much things that we don't like, but things that maybe we would have liked to see more of. Uh, Death Dealer, (laughs) (laughs) Um, in my opinion. He, yeah, just such a a menacing presence. And uh, I think was taken from us too soon, but we can can get there later. Uh, But Mm. then, of course, Shang-Chi comes face to face with his father and Mm. we see their reunion. Much like, again, Black Widow, family reunions were happening. The first time I saw this, like, I guess, you know, Black Widow was the most recent thing in my brain. And I was just like, oh, this reminds me of Black Widow. This reminds me of Black Widow. Siblings fighting. Dinner table scene, you know, Um, Uh which amazing. It works on me every time. It gets me every time. (laughs) These these, uh, tropes, if you want to call them that. But yeah, so Shang-Chi coming face to face with his father. And uh, when Wu revealing 
that he wants Shang-Chi to take his place at his side. So again, kind of uh, bringing in that idea of purpose, right? Uh, And how there are these external expectations being placed on Shang-Chi from Wenwu here. So what did you make of Shang-Chi and Wenwu's uh, reunion? Leading into it, I think the thing that makes that reunion work is if everything we know about Shang-Chi up until this point is him running from his past, not wanting to deal in the discipline that was, I mean, pretty blatantly abused into him from the teachings of his father and people like Death uh, Dealer. You know, he has to, to do what we talked about, scaling the scaffolding and, you know, getting to that point. And once he gets up there, it's this beautiful sequence where it's like a neon backdrop and he's fighting the Death Dealer and he comes so close to doing a, a final blow. He was going to take out the Finish death dealer. Him. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> he was going to to do that. And even though we now know he is capable of stopping the person who taught him all he knows, because even though it was his the wish of his father, death dealer was the one who was there uh, training and discipline and beating him. He is capable of beating that stand in for his past but it's not enough he still has to reconcile with his father because that is where everything stems from um and you know i I mentioned at the top that there this movie is dealing with intergenerational trauma if this is the moment that i really kind of wanted to bring that in because you know i'm I'm being careful here because again as we just talked about i'm going off memory here so this may be a messy reference but the thing that I love so much about superhero movies is it takes the literal, it takes like a relatable problem, turns it literal and makes it extreme. Mm-hmm. So for example, WandaVision, her grief, it feels like the world has stopped. She literally has the power to make the world stop. And you get to examine all of that. Uh, Tony Stark, he is an insecure man who builds an exoskeleton to handle all the external and internal fights that he can't fight until we learn until he learns how he is who he is without needing the suit. So it's it's these extremes that are teaching our characters. And the thing that I think I appreciated about Shang-Chi is so often the uh, abuse is passed on through generations. And with Wenwu, they have taken that in a literal sense because he's been around for thousands of years. So the force that Shang-Chi has having to reckon with is all those decisions that Wenwu has made for thousands of years that have come back to influence their family for better or worse. And so it's not enough for Shang-Chi just to run away from it successfully or to be capable. He has to face that lineage, if that makes sense. And so this is where that started to take shape for me and started moving into a lot more moving territory as we get more of that relationship between Shang-Chi and Wenwu. Zeroing in on what you're sort of saying here about superhero movies taking that conflict, right, and making it literal, taking it to the extreme. You have, I, I think that's where we get the best villains in the MCU is when the villain is the externalization of the protagonist's inner conflict, right? Mm-hmm. And so to see that play out with 
this father and son dynamic, while a father and son dynamic is is nothing particularly new, right? There's mm-hmm. maybe a reason why it, it, it's a tried and true trope because it does it's able to do that, and they do it so effectively here in the presence of of Wen Wu, who, you know, when we see him again, he doesn't look like the same intimidating soldier who we first met in the flashback, right? Like he's mm-hmm. just a guy. He looks like just a man. And we we find out that he wants to find his wife, right? Like, but he somehow is able to be vulnerable and sympathetic and uh, revealing his motivations in an open way. And his motivation is not more power, you know, mahaha, right? But his mm-hmm. his motivation seems to be something, you know, to reunite with with his wife and to have his son kind of be by his side in the family business, right? And he always keeps an eye on his children. These are all the things that that don't necessarily seem uh, terrifying by any means, and yet he is still able to be really scary. And I think that's just a, uh, a testament to Tony Leung's performance, who is, he's rightfully getting a lot of, of praise for, for his performance in this film. 100%. I think, you know, I, I wasn't personally familiar with Tony Leung before this, but it's so easy to understand the unanimous praise that he's been getting because he communicates so much. Um, the, the thing I keep seeing repeated and, and felt in the movies is that he communicates with his eyes. Like yeah. he, is, everything we learned about him is this brute. But whenever we meet him at the end of the day, he's genuinely happy to see his children. Yes. Um, even if it is a tarnished relationship because of the abuse that he's inflicted on them, there you can understand the like the movie has shown its math like you relate to to when we're dealing with the loss of his wife and trying to prepare his kids for for the thing that he couldn't process himself and of course he took the wrong way and there's no excuse for that but in his own internal psyche he thought he was doing what was best for his children. So it makes all the sense in the world that he's so excited to see them and welcoming them back because they are important to him. And how how could you not relate to somebody caring for their family like he cares for uh, Xia Ling and Shang-Chi? Yeah, absolutely. And he, for, for these reasons, he's such a dynamic villain antagonist if we want to call him an antagonist mm-hmm. as opposed to a villain maybe um because he's certainly not your traditional villain for all the reasons that that we stated so i am curious trey because you have spoken about before your love for iron man 3 mm-hmm. and i was curious going going into this as an iron man 3 fan how how did you receive the callbacks to the Mandarin? How did you receive seeing Trevor Slattery here again? And, you know, for me, for somebody who was not a huge fan of Iron Man 3, mm-hmm. watching this movie, Shang-Chi, recontextualizes it and makes it feel more of the same larger MCU tapestry than it may have felt like before for me. But as somebody mm-hmm. who genuinely has loved the film all along, how how do those two things go together for you? So, you know, we mentioned my top five MCU movies at the top. Yes. Iron Man is in the top five. Iron Man 3, I should say. And 
it it is not a very appreciated movie for a lot of people, and I 100% understand that. But I have found myself going to bat for that movie because of the way that it handles um, PTSD and, mm-hmm. and anxiety and the things that Tony was dealing with in the aftermath of the Avengers. And to keep it to keep it focused here in that Trevor Slattery connection, another thing that Iron Man 3 does well, but also something that I've personally been coming to try and reconcile is it does deal in some racist uh, depictions. You know, the movie was trying to make its point with using the Mandarin as like this threat and using quote unquote terrorist iconography for the villain to distract people in one hand while he did other things with his other hand. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I like what they're saying because they're linking this they're linking Tony's PTSD to almost America's obsession with terrorism and how easily distractible it is because you are dealing with some of the things post 9-11 and, sure. and, and, and all of that. And again, I'm painting in broad strokes to, to keep it to Shang-Chi, but it's even though it's making all those wonderful points, it still does depict some racist tones. And so having Trevor Slattery here, I think, is closing those story beats by saying like, hey, we recognize now that was tasteless. That wasn't the greatest depiction in the world. And it's hammered home by the fact that when we even specifically calls it out, like, you know, there was an American who terrorized the country with a fruit. And so it was this misunderstanding of his his name because he doesn't even go by Mandarin. We learned his name is is Wenwu, that it, it, it solidifies how important it is to put that respect towards who people are. And so having Trevor Slattery here openly state like, oh, I recognize that was bad now is a closure on Iron Man 3. And so I, I do appreciate the film taking the time to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I love the line. It's like a what I now recognize to be a rather unflattering portrayal of your <laughs> father. And he just kind of shrugs. And it's it's funny, but that meta level, it really does work so well. And I, you know, I said this when I did my first impressions, I, especially on first viewing and even since then, you know, I don't feel like in terms of the story of Shang-Chi and who he is and who he becomes throughout this journey in this movie, I don't think that Trevor is, you know, necessary or essential to his identity journey. Obviously, Trevor is necessary (laughs) in the story to move the plot Uh along here, obviously, in his communication with the creature Morris and being able to guide Shang-Chi and Katie into Talo and and Shang-Chi, Katie and Zhaoling into Talo. Um, But in terms of of story, right, their relationship is not one that uh, further helps to develop the character of, of Shang-Chi. However, in a meta way, it's so satisfying to see Trevor Slattery back for all the mm-hmm. reasons you stated. And in an entertainment way, pure entertainment way, he is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> ben Kingsley is a delight. Just the Planet of the Apes scene in the car, classic. Mm-hmm. You know what? I... I think on my first viewing, because like when Jude and I did our quick reactions episode, I I mentioned 
he is a bit character that I expected to be one scene and that was it, mm -hmm. but turned into somebody who joining, joined along for the ride and it somehow worked. And I thought a lot about that. And it wasn't until I read a comment in some Reddit thread where somebody was saying, like, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed Katie. I enjoyed uh, Trevor Slattery, but I don't know why they needed two comedic characters. And I, it helped trigger what importance Trevor Slattery has in this story. And, and I admit it is excessive. I don't think you need it. But there is something special about having him here because... I think Katie is servicing that comedic role. You know, you always have your 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 comedic relief, and Katie does that. But as much as this movie is dealing with her thinking that she's in a good place and that she's happy, we know she's lying to herself and wants something more to latch on to. Mm -hmm. So there is this inverse relationship where they're having that conversation about Planet of the Apes, and she says, man, it's so good that you figured out what you want and you just went out there and you did it. Yeah. And from that moment on, Trevor Slattery serves that comedic role, and Katie starts to go on that growth of wanting to be something more, as we oh. see. I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but uh, in Talo, where she doesn't have to be that character. She can be who she wants to be because, you know, she's always had that choice if she didn't see it. That's a great point. I hadn't considered what a turning point that is for her. And mm -hmm. it's I think further emphasized by the fact that right she makes that comment to Trevor right before they drive in to Talo through the messiness and danger of the forest and she's the one driving right I, mm -hmm. I think again to your point where they build for us like her her relationship to driving throughout the film but here she is and she's cross like all of them she's crossing this threshold into what is going to become a new opportunity for her as well. So I think that's really cool to put it in those terms that I hadn't, I hadn't considered that, that I uh, think about this idea of purpose, right? Slattery is somebody who has felt this sense of his purpose for so long. And even, uh, you know, here I am maybe being a bit harsh and saying that his relationship to Shang-Chi doesn't feel essential to Shang-Chi's growth. But look, in that moment, that certainly is a signifier in uh, in something that happens with Katie. So I think that's really cool. Mm -hmm. and, and it speaks to the way it's it's framed because he's going on about the planet of the apes and thinking that they were real <laughs> apes. And if they could act, he could act. And everybody is kind of like, like, we don't have time for this, but it, it's speaking to Katie. Yeah. And so, yeah, like that's, I think that's what really stood out to me upon uh, thinking about yeah. it some more. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's such a cool point. We go into Talo and to me, this was on first viewing. Once we entered Talo, as much as I thought the creatures looked super cool and I love the character of Ying Nan, who I'm going to talk a little bit more about, but on my first viewing, I was sort of like, ah, I kind of miss the more grounded, realistic world of what we had in San Francisco. And mm -hmm. um, I think even <laughs> after the subsequent viewings, I would say that most of my favorite scenes in the film do take place before we enter Talo. But that being said, there is a lot of really important stuff here that that happens for Shang-Chi in, in his journey of becoming, and, and as, as I said, crossing this threshold Meeting his aunt Yingnan is a huge part of that because, and for Zha Ling too, this is the connection to their mother. And mm. one of my favorite 
one of my other favorite scenes, this one that does take place in this in this second half of the film, is the training scene between Yingnan and Shang-Chi. The way they communicate with their facial expressions is fantastic. And he comes to her, right, as a as a an older, wiser relative, right? Like, help me do this. How how did my mother beat my father? And uh, I think you brought this up earlier when she says to him, your mother knew who she was, do you? I I think, again, we're really hitting on the central idea of this film, right, about knowing who you are and and connecting to your purpose. It echoes earlier in the film when Katie asks him on the bus, who are you, right? A very Mm -hmm. different delivery and a very different context when she looks at him and she's just like, this dude's meant to be my best friend, Sean. Like, what the heck? Who is this Mm -hmm. martial arts master, right? Who are you? Um, your mother knew who she was to you. I think it's just so, uh, such a powerful bookmark. 100%. And, you know, I, you mentioning their facial expressions during that fight, it, it made me appreciate thinking about this in that lens of, you know, know who you are. Yes, he, he comes to his aunt to, to learn how to best his father and, He's kind of, he's almost doing a similar thing that his father did, where he was kind of showing off with his his physical prowess that he was in command, Mm -hmm. and he kind of gives her like a shrug and a smirk whenever he is able to push her back, and that's when she turns into Eleven and shows him the, the, the more fluid discipline that was seen with Shang-Chi's mother in the beginning, and he's once again humbled, and so, yeah, I, I, I like that training montage because it is an echo to what has happened in the beginning when we learned about Wenwu in, in Shang-Chi's mother. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a wonderful sequence. And, and there's a thing that I want to highlight specifically whenever she is instructing him in that, uh, Talo discipline where when he's fighting, he's fighting with closed fists and it's very brutal, but she like walks up to him and she opens up the palm of his hands to have that more like that's why I keep referring to it as this fluid feeling because it is that imagery of like the wind flow because I you know they're moving the wind around to help them in the fight so it's that feeling of openness and accepting and it's it is a stand-in for everything that his mother was about without her actually having to be there. Yeah, absolutely. It's a it's such a beautiful visual signifier of that. And I love that moment when she uh, takes his fists and opens them up. It's it's so symbolic. And it's just you feel the difference in your own body when you are are fighting in those styles. And I have taken both Taekwondo and uh, Krav Maga classes in, in my life. And uh, the differences in the styles of training for both of those martial arts is are so distinct and um it's not a from my opinion it's not a value judgment of one over the other but your body Mm -hmm. just does feel very very different um depending on you know the stances that you hold and the way you hold your your hands and it's it's not even it's not just a physical thing right like it, it kind of connects to how your mind feels as well it's really interesting and you know, if I'm not mistaken, this is in the vicinity. You can tell this is where 
you know, the the first half of the movie was obviously so much more impactful, but my sequency towards the end starts to get a little uh, messy. But if I'm not yeah, mistaken, <laughs> I, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, I think this is the scene where his aunt states, you are the makeup of both your mother yeah. and your father. And so I like that you bring into that perspective, one, because I didn't know that about you and that's really cool. But two, it isn't a value judgment on one side or the other. Um, yeah. You know, yes, his his mother is the stand-in for the good aspects of Shang-Chi and his father, obviously, the, the negative sides. But at the end of the day, if he's going to come to this place where, yes, his father has passed on these traumas from thousands of years onto him, he has to recognize that that doesn't mean being who or doing what he's learned from his father makes him a bad person. It just is different. And so yeah. it being that non-value judgment of the two different styles, we're educated about those influences without having to have the person they stand for weigh it down, if that makes sense. I think it makes a lot of sense. I think it's, it's hugely, uh, effective when she says that line about being the product of all who came before you, the legacy of your family. And it, it's just, it, I think she says light and dark, good and bad. It's, it's all part of mm -hmm. who you are. Um, it, it's just something that, right. She accuses him of, of hiding from it. And I think when uses that language as well of hiding, right. That he, he is um, who he is, hasn't changed. Right. When he, becomes Sean, but he's just not fully embracing all of who he is because of that fear. He reveals to Katie when he tells her the truth about the fact that he was capable of killing this man who was responsible for his mother's death, right? He, he, his mother's death, he admits that he is capable of the same violence as his father. And so that's what he's been hiding from. When Wu tells him later, right? He says, "I'm not afraid of you." And when Wu is like, "You are, you are afraid of me." And, You've and, always been afraid. Yeah, and and it's maybe it's not. Oh, you're afraid I can beat you. Maybe it's you're afraid of becoming me, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. You're afraid of of who I have trained you to be and the influence I've had on you. So he, I think he tells him at one point in the movie too. And and like you, this is where I'm a little fuzzy on chronology. But he says, <laughs> uh, "You know, you can't outrun who you are." It's so it's so cool. I'm thinking about it even more now, just like the language around running and hiding. And uh, man, this movie's good. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know, there there's the sequence where he's sitting by the lake with Katie. And this is all the framing of somebody thinking like, I know what I have to do now. I have found the answer to all my problems and I'm going to do it. Yep. And it's the wrong thing. He says, I'm going to do what my father trained me to do. I'm going to kill him. And so that right there is a repeat of what we saw as the metaphorical stand-in with the fight for the death dealer. He's still approaching this problem from, I have to force my way through it. And I don't think, it, again, it's in the vicinity, but I don't think it's a coincidence that we get that most traumatic moment where as a child, Wu takes him to that, yeah. uh, that place I can't remember exactly what it was. It was kind of like a, a gambling ring and he attacks those men and you see a young Shang-Chi have to 
visually take in the trauma and culminate to that point where a body is like thrown at the the wall next to him and Wenwu comes and uses the rings to smash that guy's face in and you can see like the the shiver of a young Shang-Chi take all that moment in and so it's how am I trying to phrase this the the thing that I zone in on when it comes to intergenerational trauma is this feeling of it didn't start with you yeah like Whatever things that you are dealing with, it came from, you know, save within this instance, the father abuse, it came from your father and from his father. And that line continues on and on. And so it's, it's wonderful that the conclusion that we're going to get to makes Shang-Chi and Wenwu have to face their past together because it's, it's a sympathetic look at both of these two men trying to reconcile their past together. And I feel like I rambled on a little bit about that, but it's, it's, it's beautiful what this movie's doing in terms of that intergenerational trauma between them. Yeah, no, I, I think that that was, that was beautifully stated. I think that that scene, everything about the way that it's shot, that flashback scene with young Shang-Chi wearing the suit and holding his mm-hmm. father's hand and just the, the way that the camera is on the mirror so you see some of the violence in reflection and then as you said the body is thrown at the mirror and and you see the impact it has on Shang-Chi just again absolutely gorgeous the way that these these action scenes were were shot to further the uh, the ideas and and the themes and the motifs of the, of the larger story and I think that's what makes it special because I think you alluded to, alluded to it too Father issues are a dime a dozen in the MCU and in general, but I think what's successful about this movie's handling on it is taking that time to show it from the perspective of Wu as well, because of all the things we talked about, about his relatable problem and just wanting to reunite his family. We talked a little bit about Yingnan's comments to Shang-Chi about the legacy of his family being both mother and father. And I think we see that visually in a few different ways. Mm-hmm. We, of course, see the dragon, who is representative of his mother, right? Representative of Talo. And uh, we see the gold and blue palette. I had mentioned this on my on my first impressions when Shang-Chi first enters Talo. In fact, when he is in Macau and, and he's fighting and he first is reunited with his dad, as far back as that scene, he's wearing the gold and blue bomber jacket and then we see the golden uh, color surrounding the rings when he gets control of them versus the blue of his dad so I think you know again visually kind of signifying for us that that he's combining both just really some lovely stuff Uh, you know this entire kind of part of the movie that involves Shang-Chi and Wenwu's showdown the dragon the dweller in darkness and the soul eaters and the battle uh, I I kind of want to just group all of it together um, and mm-hmm. and sort of say what's going on here, right? Like like if we're tracing Shang-Chi's identity journey and we're tracing the, these familial relationships and this idea of, of purpose, what's going on in this whole uh, last big action sequence of the movie? You know, I, I, I've heard the criticisms about how this whole action sequence is the MCU doing its MCU thing. The thing that I said in our podcast is why I think it works is because it still continues to imbue the action with the story that we're dealing with. And so with 
Shang-Chi and Wenwu, uh, I, you know, I already mentioned that it was kind of this repeat of where he tries to force, forcibly overcome his father. You know, not going to work. You have that scene where they are, again, by the river and Shang-Chi is yelling, is this what you want? Is this who you trained me to be? And, and he has Wenwu almost surrender. But it wasn't until Shang-Chi playing in that forceful nature goes for that cheap shot of, you know, even if mom was back there, what makes her think that she would have anything to do with you now? And again, he continues the cycle of abuse instead of of trying to face their past together. He did the thing, even though it wasn't murder, he went with the aggressive move that he thought was the answer and pays the price for it. And so once you have uh, round two, where they are fighting with the rings and they have that beautiful blue and yellow imagery between them as they juggle the rings back and forth. The way that Shang-Chi is able to do it is by not necessarily surrendering, but allowing his father to live. He throws the rings down and he's not going to kill him. And that's the moment I think it clicks for his father. You know, thinking back again to the question of like, what were some of the dislikes? If there's anything that I think I would say, maybe a dislike is that moment between him going for the forceful nature of going with the low blow against his father before and then transforming to melding the disciplines together. I think somewhere in between there, we should have had a little bit more of him making that transition. Mm. Uh, because even though I think the, the movie's showing its work, I don't know if we saw Shang-Chi necessarily internalize it rather than the are, are are more just implied with the meeting of the dragon because as you so wonderfully put it the dragon represents his mother and of all the people we've been dealing with she is the example that is held up for knowing who she was and it's evident by the fact that she loved her family so much she left Tao Lo behind. She right. gave up her power and was willing to still stand up for them when those attackers came because she knew who she was. And so, yes, it is it is MCU action sequences, but just that sequence right there of those two rounds with Wenwu and Shang-Chi, there's so much story that's being told there. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And And each time I've seen it since the first watch, I enjoy it more and more because <laughs> I... The dragon, I think, does look really cool. I I know that there have been some criticisms of the CGI. I think the Dweller in Darkness and the other Soul Eaters are a little bit, you know, they were fine. Uh, They didn't blow me away in their design. Uh, In fact, I think the Dweller in Darkness just kind of reminded me of uh, the creature from the Stranger Things, whose uh, name I'm I'm blanking on now. But yeah, I mean, your typical kind of... uh, creature. I, I thought the dragon was was really gorgeous though. And to your point, I think that there are enough character moments within this that I, I'm still enjoying it and, and I wouldn't mm-hmm. go out of my way to um to critique it. I, I do like you, I, I think that um I would have maybe liked to see some more of Xiaoling within all of this. Uh, of course, the moment yeah. between Shang-Chi and Xiaoling when he's, you know, she's basically like, dude, you got to let me go here. And he says, I'm not leaving you again. That's obviously a, a very important moment um, for for his character and in, in reckoning with, you know, facing how he did hurt her. Again, not turning his back on his family anymore, embracing what this family means, even if it is uh, something messy 
Uh, and for her, you know, she had earlier in the film said, oh, this family was destroyed a long time ago. And this is kind of showing her, okay, like maybe it's not. Um, but regardless, yeah, I, you know, it's cool to see her, her training. It's cool to see her see a society in which, uh, women and men are trained alongside one another when in her experience, she was left out of having that experience because she was a girl when she was younger. So it's cool to see this for her. I think I just, again, maybe would have liked some more of her throughout this kind of last big action scene of the movie. And they and they they dance around it too because they have that big moment where Ying Nan says, "Here in Talo, we don't, we, you know, we don't separate. We train equally as yeah. one." And she has the moment where she gives her the the rope and and dagger, and it's so cool. And again, she's not without her moments. But as much as we praise the way they imbue story with action, I'm not necessarily sure she got that same treatment with her action, even though there was cool scenes. We, I think there could have been a little bit more there. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I think then on the flip side of that, I, I do think that what happens with Katie works here. So I think you so so aptly put it earlier about the uh, kind of the, the conversation that she has with Trevor being this this turning point for her. We have here that, you know, I, I said earlier, the movie seems to in some ways be about forging your path. And mm -hmm. maybe against others' expectations for you, but also embracing the legacy of what has been laid out before. And for for Katie, right, she's really coming into her purpose. If you aim at nothing, you hit nothing, which is what one of the elder folks in Talo tells her. And we see for her, her involvement in this battle, that she is able to take a shot. And you know what? it happens to be a lucky shot and it happens to hit the bad <laughs> demon right in the throat, which is exactly what they needed in that moment so that the demon wouldn't take the dragon's, the dragon's soul. And might that be a little unrealistic that she got such a lucky shot? Sure. But this is also a scene in which a demon is trying to take a dragon's soul. So it is all <laughs> a little bit unrealistic at the end of the day. Um, but again, I, I think what the movie does well here is that it is a lucky shot. And that was the point. Mm -hmm. The point was she just needed to aim at something, right? The point right. was that she just needed to freaking try because <laughs> she is a, a really capable person. She just, you know, hadn't found something that that really had given her purpose. And I so I think this whole bit about being trained in in archery and then seeing the person who trained her, you know, sadly be be taken down by these demons uh, mm. in that moment where she's just kind of like, yeah. And she says later, right, doesn't she says something about hearing her mom's voice in the back of her head and it's played for laughs. But um, I, I think that works for me. The, the whole action story marriage for the, the scenes we see of Katie in the action sequence do do work for me. What do you think? 100%. And, and you've laid out wonderfully why I like that moment with her taking the shot, which by the way, I, I've read my fair share of screenwriting books before and the the whole like, oh, it's a lucky shot. The thing that comes to mind is a paragraph I wrote about like, quote unquote, plot holes that aren't really plot holes or things that feel a little too convenient. Like nobody makes a story about making a sandwich. Like, according, like obviously <laughs> extraordinary events are the things that are going to be front and center. And what separates it from just feeling like, oh, that would never happen versus being impactful is, you know, stretching or bending reality 
to help further the point you're making. And yeah. so if I can play off what you were saying about why that scene works, the math that they they show to that is whenever she starts training and she, or even before she begins to train, she thinks that she's just taking those arrows to wherever it needs to be. And she's just kind of going on about like, yeah, you know, I, you know, I try so many different things, but I always stop myself before I get too good because, you know, why waste my time in something that I'm just not going to be interested in? And it's kind of played for last, but you can see that element of truth where she is insecure about what she wants to do. And then that's where that line of if you aim at nothing, you hit nothing. And the the moment I think that makes it all work is the first round of fighting, she is told to stay in the tent because she is not ready. Right. And then once the, uh, the, the dwellers come out, she is rushing again to fight and they try to stop her. And she says, no, my friends need me. I'm going out there. And so she makes that active choice to participate, to actually try despite those fears of wanting to try anything. And it ends up being the thing that helps save the day. So that's why I think Katie works so well in that beginning. And it, it's it's just a continuation of her entire story throughout the movie. Yeah, it's a great point. There's a great through line there. We've talked before you've mentioned how you're a big fan of like a non-traditional weapon so i i just wanted to <laughs> in talking about how they take the the dweller in darkness down we have the the shot to the throat which keeps it from getting the dragon soul which is important and then we see jean ling plays a role right she and shang chi are both on the, on the dragon and they're both trying to you know she's able to to use her weapon to kind of lasso the dragon a bit and then you, you have Shang-Chi use the rings and I do think it looks really cool kind of gruesome when mm-hmm. <laughs> he's like I don't even know what the right word is to shoots or propels the rings and then it kind of like explodes out of the dragon <laughs> when <laughs> when he calls them back to him really really uh cool looking stuff it's it's the exclamation point on the sentence this story is writing because again as much as we talked about the melding of his two influences all uh, leading up to him recalling the rings which is what explodes the the dragon he is using that mother's discipline to control them as they like are circulating inside the chest of the dragon and it's all this fluid beautiful movements as he's coming down and then he closes his fist, which I think is that representation yeah. of his father and recalls the rings. So this is this is the victory lap of the movie. Like it is it is made its point and it's getting to revel in it. So it's it's such a wonderful sequence. Oh man. Yeah, that is such that is such a great point, Trey. And I think any doubts I had in my mind about like, does this scene work as well as many of the others in the movie, I think goes away when you when you put it that way, for sure. <laughs> Um, yeah, I uh, I might be a little biased, but I love this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, that's why you're here. That's why you're here. I was really excited, you know, given that I also love it very much. And, and you know, I'm willing to engage in a conversation that, that can understand how certain aspects might not work for every viewer. Of course, there's different perspectives, but I was really excited to talk to somebody else who just also genuinely uh, loved everything about it. So... Just a, another comment on on Jialing. You know, you had mentioned earlier about this kind of uh, lack of lack of value judgment coming from mother versus father. Two different fighting styles here. Of course, you know we 
his father is a villain, right? So we do know right. in that way, like, mm-hmm. like the, the movie is not condoning the actions of Wenwu, but I think it's more sort of saying that, you know, you, the, the rings and whatever the rings represent, whatever maybe style of fighting or violence or approach to power that the rings represent, the, those actual objects are not the thing that is inherently bad, right? So what mm-hmm. comes from your father is not inherently bad. It's how you're going to use it. Um, right. The skills that he taught you are not inherently bad. It's how you're going to use it. So I, I think we also see an interesting marriage of of influence, mother and father on Zha Ling. And maybe kind of uh, at first what we see, I'm skipping over the mid credit scene to talk about the last <laughs> scene first. But, you know, it, it sort of seems in that post credit scene when I first read it, I'm like, oh, OK, so despite everything she's following in the footsteps of dad. And she's also kind of like giving uh, your favorite, the middle finger to dad as well by subverting (laughs) it. Right. So I'm taking over the empire. I'm sitting here with the flag behind me, but this time it's in graffiti. And this time I'm training everybody regardless of gender. Right. So I took that as like, huh, what an interesting, like kind of, uh, subversion of her father but you know maybe it's also not entirely what it seems and maybe this is the forging of Zha Ling's path and we will see kind of the influence of both she also had those moments with the dragon she had those moments with Shang-Chi so maybe this doesn't have to necessarily be her going in a nefarious direction maybe she's mm-hmm. going to occupy more of a gray area um, maybe she too is a lesson in this yin and yang of of legacy Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and you know, I, whenever we did our quick reactions, that was one of the things Jude and I both said. It's like, oh, I'm, I, I don't know if I'm excited about seeing her become like a villain. You know, you de- you definitely want more of her because she's fantastic. But I think you framing it of like maybe being in this gray space um, that could be a potential future for her because I think the MCU is definitely dealing in a lot of gray spaces here in phase four, especially, uh, with, with WandaVision, uh, the, the, the kind of in the middle, they left Wanda where she did do these things, but she kind of got to leave on her own. Um, John Walker and Falcon and the Winter Soldier. I think that's a very easy example. So the MCU is definitely dealing in these gray spaces. And I like, if this is a continuation of Wenwu's influences on Zha Ling, you know, we talked about it. Wenwu, you understand where he's coming from. Even though he's done horrendous things, you see what makes him tick as a character. So with Zha Ling, even if she does become this villain, we have gotten to know her so well that whatever it is she's doing at that compound that she has taken over... I think we know enough about her to know it's not coming from a villainous place. She's just doing what she perceives to be right, right. given the influences of those families. So yeah, I, I I like the way that you have phrased it as potentially being this gray area. And it's just, I mean, it's it's the MCU. It's it's the breadcrumb to what comes next. Right. So the fact that they're able to plant those seeds is exciting to see what comes next. Oh, absolutely. And I'm I'm very much looking forward to seeing where where she goes in the future. And I'm, I'm hoping it's, it's more in that gray area and uh, Mm -hmm. we shall see, but we do have to talk about kind of lumping together the last scene of the movie when Shang-Chi and Katie 
hang out with their their friends from San Francisco again, and they're filling them in on these adventures that they just had, and the arrival of Wong through the portal, which is very funny, and then leading <laughs> into the mid credit scene. So what did you, you think of that mid credit scene? The mid credit scene itself is why I'm so in love with the MCU. I was giddy. <laughs> I was like ev- all but jumping up and down in my seat, seeing uh, Wong you know, speak to Shang-Chi and Katie because it is this broadening of the tapestry. And then you hear this voice, this distinct male voice, and you think it's Doctor Strange because of being with Wong. I think it was the Sanctum Sanctorum. Mm-hmm. But that revelation that is Bruce Banner, it's like, oh, yeah, like we just got treated to this wonderful entry point for this new character, this new world. But here's where he fits into the larger scope of everything. And he is just as large. He is just as big a part of it as any of the other Avengers. And it's exciting to see them uh, get together, especially with Carol Danvers as well, because, you know, after Endgame or really after Infinity War, the state of the Avengers is kind of in flux. Yeah. Uh, Natasha was the one who was kind of keeping them together. And obviously we know the fate that she has suffered. So to to get this movie int- to get this movie introducing Shang-Chi and showing the Avengers still, you know, putting tape together and like oh, barely holding on, it's it's heartwarming in a way. Um because I think you and your guest have wonderfully illustrated that a lot of the themes in the MCU is this found family feeling. And so the fact that Shang-Chi and Katie have dealt with a large portion of that and are greeted into this large found family is just a nice way to top off this entire movie. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I've mentioned this before, but I love seeing who's going to show up where and who's going to be in conversation with who. And moving forward, this combination of, of Avengers and pals, uh, both old and new, seeing where we're going to get team-ups and where we're going to get conversations that may not have been had before is really cool to me. So it's like Shang-Chi and Katie and Wong and Bruce and Carol wouldn't have necessarily guessed that, but even just in this <laughs> one conversation, I loved it. I lo- and there's there's humor in there. I love Bruce being like, yeah, I don't have her number. Like She, <laughs> like, she does this all the time. I thought that was hilarious. Um, and <laughs> uh, Or even the idea of somebody like Carol Danvers, who has the immense power that she has traveling galaxy to galaxy that she would have a cell phone plan is just yeah. delightful. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's those little things that thinking about the details of how they relate to each other and what, and what their ordinary lives might be, um, which is mm-hmm. always so fun for me. And speaking of ordinary lives and, and speaking of the types of like fan fiction scenes that, that uh, you want to see play out, Shang-Chi and Katie and Wong going to karaoke. Amazing. <laughs> You know, I mentioned that he's quickly becoming a personal favorite. That scene right there is Wong had the look of somebody who's feeling really good or as uh, Loki put it, feeling very full yes. and just <laughs> singing his heart out. And it was like, yes, I love you, Wong. <laughs> <laughs> very full. I love it. Yeah, it was mm. wonderful. And it, and it also, I, I love that it also showed that Shang-Chi and Katie, are, they're still holding on to that lightheartedness that they had at the beginning of the movie they're still silly they still might go out and party when maybe they shouldn't go out and party and uh, (laughs) it's it was just fantastic and the use of hotel california uh, inspired so good so we've talked a lot about the movie we've talked a lot about the themes that we've seen in the movie and where it fits within the larger mcu 
are there any scenes that we didn't explicitly touch on that you wanted to bring up or even maybe scenes or moments that we did talk about, but that you just want to um, go back to for a moment? I think it is the the scene here towards the end where, because we talked about the, the mid credit scene, but the moment where Shang-Chi and Katie are in the restaurant with their friends and Wong comes in and asks for Shang-Chi and asks if he has the rings. It's such a wonderful closure on the story because we open up with that history uh, telling of Wu and how he used the rings to conquer and specifically in that narration, Shang-Chi's mother says he could have used those rings for the betterment of the world, but instead mm-hmm. he did what he did. And so if everything this movie is about is Shang-Chi, or at least for Shang-Chi, is about him reconciling that past and learning there are no value judgments from the influences of his mother and his father, the fact that the scene comes all the way back around to Shang-Chi stepping into another call to adventure through Wong and having those rings with him, it shows that the past has been rectified. He can now change the world for the better through the influences of who he is. And I think that's just a beautiful way to end the movie. Oh, man. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that's so nicely said. And I love the way that you're talking about the framing of the storytelling too, right? I I Mm. started thinking about the subtitle of the film, right? and the le- Shang-Chi and the legend of the Ten Rings. And this idea of legend, right, which also mm-hmm. gets you thinking a little bit about legacy, which we've talked a lot about, but also legend, this idea of storytelling, and the movie opens up with that narration, and then it closes with this other form of, of storytelling, right, Shang-Chi and Katie to their friends. And uh, it's what, a, what a beautiful way of, uh, of bookending the film. Yeah. So good. <laughs> it is. It's really, really so good. So, Trey, thank you so much for all of your thoughts on Shang-Chi. We got to hear your top five MCU films. Okay. So, starting with number one and working my way down, I think uh, if anybody's familiar with me, the obvious one. Winter Soldier, uh, Captain America, the Winter Soldier is just, it's the movie I think that really got me into the MCU. Like I've been there since Iron Man, but after Winter Soldier, that's when I started getting into the release schedule, all the contracts, like all the behind the scenes of the MCU because I fell in love with it. So, you know, pair that with my Captain America fanboy, it's <laughs> it's impossible for anything else to be number one. So good. Except maybe number two, which interchanges all the time, (laughs) which is Avengers Endgame. But a lot of that is because it's such a a send-off for everything we worked up towards that moment and being an incredible Captain America entry point too because of all his Avengers Assemble or, you know, lifting Mjolnir. You know, it's it's hard to separate uh, those two from being in the top spot. Number three... This is the one that shocked me. Uh, it's Shang-Chi. I think that movie has dramatically shot up to the top of my MCU rankings just because of everything we talked about here today. Um, and then four is Iron Man 3, uh, and it rounds off the list with number five, Doctor Strange. I really like the list, Trey. And I, I like that you and I have some things 
super in common on our lists. And then we also have some that are departure points. But I also love that looking at it from the outside, I can see where while Iron Man 3 and Doctor Strange aren't in my own top five, I can see the things about them that would draw you to them as a person who we do have a lot of things in common that resonate with us from those other three that are in your top five. Um, so it, it's, it's really, really cool to see. You know, if, and if I can speak about your, your top five episodes, that was one of my favorite things. I think listening to it was every person who contributed was like, Oh, I'm sure this is going to give me, give the fans <laughs> feeling one way about me, but there was so much commonality between them that like, it goes to show how, Yes, there are characters that resonate with you so distinctly, but it's it's such a creative and vast universe that there is a lot more commonality than we think. And so it was a really great episode to listen to. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that so much. Oh, and you you uh, sent me your top five characters when I put the call out on Instagram. Do you want to just really quickly share your characters too? So I believe it was Steve Rogers, Peter Parker, Shang-Chi, Doctor Strange, and this goes to show the the ever changing list. I can't remember who's in that final spot. It's always that fifth spot that I feel like day right? to day it changes for me too. Oh, Vision. Yes, Vision. Vision. Yes. <laughs> yeah, the, that was that was the one of the last ones. Vision. I lo- also love Vision, and I love that that Shang Chi has uh, immediately stood out to you as being worthy of, uh, of a favorite character title, because I I'm right there with you. And he's immediately leaves, um, such a good impression. And you just want to see more of him. And it, it stems from the actor himself being such a huge fan of the MCU and yeah. getting to realize it within the movies. It, of course, he's going to be shot up into the, the top of everybody's list. Yeah, absolutely. And I can't wait to have more of him in this universe uh, for, for years to come. And speaking of things that we're excited about, in terms of what's coming next in the MCU, if I asked you today, and I didn't put this in the outline, so I'm sorry, but if I asked you today, like, what is the top thing, the number one thing that you're looking forward to for, the, let's even just say the remainder of 2021? It's Spider-Man No Way Home. Okay. Like, it- <laughs> It's it's hard to beat the excitement surrounding that movie, all the things we do know for sure about the the villains who will be making an appearance, all the rumors of the things people are anticipating. It is, it's going to be another event in the MCU, and so it's it's hard to keep an eye out on anything but Spider Man No Way Home. I know I'm I'm in a in a small way like you know I love the micro stories so in a small way I am feeling so excited for Hawkeye and I plan to talk about this a lot more with Daniel in a couple of weeks I uh, read the the uh, Matt Fraction David Aha uh, run of Hawkeye the graphic novels and I'm obsessed and I'm so excited. Um, so, so that's me. Of course I'd be like this person who is like, it's 2021 and I'm geeking out over black widow and Hawkeye. What's wrong with me? Um, but, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, but yeah, I mean, Spider-Man no way home is absolutely, I was talking with a a student at school the other day and we were like, yeah, it's, it has potential to feel like end game. I think you've said Mm -hmm. that too, Trey, like after this, this post, uh, endgame moment in the MCU. I mean, this thing feels like it is going to be huge. It's going to be huge 
no matter what. It's especially going to feel huge in this in this uh, COVID era. Um, mm-hmm. We're already seeing the MCU breaking box office records for what this new way of, of interacting with the world and public spaces is. And I just, I think that Spider-Man, I think that Spider-Man No Way Home is going to be such a, a tremendous moment. Mm-hmm. It's, it, you know, I mentioned this in our, our reaction sh- when the trailer came out. You know, I, I'm, I have to be careful because I, I did put my foot in my mouth a little bit when I said this about WandaVision because some of the things that happened with Pietro didn't turn out like people were expecting. Sure. But with Spider-Man No Way Home, this really feels like it has the potential to be the saga-defining moment of whatever they're planning next. And so maybe it's it's a me not being snake-bitten enough of getting my anticipation uh, too high, <laughs> but it's it's too exciting not to to feel this in this moment because it's rare that this convergence of storylines happen. Absolutely, yeah, and you are not alone in that. So, Trey, thank you so much again for joining me to talk about Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. It is always a pleasure to talk with you about all things MCU. And I'm very much looking forward to working with you and Jude on your show again. And I'm also looking forward to sometime before the year is out, hopefully, we'll get this on the the calendar, uh, doing a follow-up to our MCU movie draft and doing some type of character draft game. I think that would be a blast. Oh, I... Whenever you want to do that, like I'm an immediate yes. That was so much fun, and I would love to do that again. Um, but yeah, seriously, thank you so much for having having me on your show. I I absolutely love what you do here. On uh, there was an idea. Um, so the moment that you asked me to come speak about Shang Chi, it's I've been giddy since. So thank you for letting me come on. Thank you. Really, it, it's been such a wonder such a wonderful gift to to be able to have your your voice on this episode. And before we go. Please do remind listeners where they can go if they want to listen to your and Jude's show, MCU Need to Know, and or find you on the internet. Yeah, if you want to find us on the internet, uh, at MCU Need to Know on Twitter and Instagram, we've been pretty active there. Uh, if you want a small taste of what we do, we, we share clips from the actual episodes itself there. But as far as the show, you know, we release every Monday uh, discussing whatever flavor of the week the MCU is putting out. Um, <laughs> and yeah, we, we dig into uh, a lot of the story mechanics. Uh, I think that's where we've settled in on after about a year and a half of doing this is really breaking down the mechanics of the storytelling and the beat by beat uh, effectiveness. Um, so if that's an interest to you and, you, and you're looking for more MCU content to add to your rotation, uh, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get uh, sp- uh, podcasts. Just look for MCU Need to Know. Thank you so much, Trey. Thank you. If you enjoyed this conversation about Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, you can follow the podcast at anidea underscore podcast on Instagram and Twitter. Artwork was designed by Brooke Pender, who you can follow at Pender Illustrations on Instagram. Music by Demeter Salvia, who you can find on Bandcamp and SoundCloud. Thank you for listening and stay tuned next week for my conversation about episodes six through eight of What If with comic book writer Michael Taylor.